All right, fellas. Got a little hot take. All we want to do is basically get some information out there right now on this. There's a whole lot more information I'm going to dive over on later. But we're talking about the shooting in Minnesota that just happened today. Well, I think it was last night. Isn't that right? Because you guys were listening to Crowder this morning about it, right? Yeah, it was last night. Mm. Okay, so yeah. and from what I understand, they're already writing. Is that also correct? Who's already writing? That there's already writing. I, I had read I had read an article, and I think I said it to Ben earlier too. It was just saying uh, there's police cars that had gotten stomped on, and buildings were already getting broken into. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. There's okay. yeah, there's for sure writing. Okay, yeah. So I just I didn't know if you guys had heard that as well. But so here's tell me what Crowder was saying this morning. You were picking up on initially, like what the original version of events was, as far as you heard it. Well, he was just basically talking about how um first of all he was speculating he said there's not much information out there right now because it's all just happening so in all fairness he was speculating but he brought up some sort of gun charge or something some sort of warrant for some sort of gun firearm something like that i don't know okay and then basically after seeing the actual video though my thoughts are completely different than what he was talking about initially. And you're always going to take what he says with the grain of salt anyways. Yeah, you know what? I, I've used him before in the past as kind of like a reference, and I'm, I'm starting to pull off that. I was having a talk with my sister the other day, and she goes, did you hear his racist rant last week? I was like, no, nah, I missed that one because I don't listen to him often. It's just kind of here and there I'll pick something up. And I kind of like his sit down and change my mind you know, perspectives. I'll, I'll, I'll listen through those. But um, – so I hadn't heard anything from him. So you're the first I was hearing that he had a, a take on it this morning, uh, and especially the gun charge. That was news to me because as I was sitting at work, uh, my nephew texted me, and this is how the whole thing started. I didn't even know about it because I don't really follow the news a whole lot. Uh, I don't just sit there and hawk the news all the time. But mm-hmm. I was sitting there, and that document that I sent you already is a warrant. And from what I understand, as far as the actions that went down last night, or the, it was really in the evening because it was still daylight in the video, but... From what I can understand, he was pulled over because he had an obstruction of his front windscreen. Is that what you understand as well? I Yeah, I was listening to the police chief talk about it and the mayor talk about it. Apparently, it was something to do with the registration or the expired tag or whatever. He got pulled over initially. I think they probably ran the tag, and I don't know. It, I, don't, I don't really know right. what exactly happened, but then... Soon well, from what I'm saying, it was, it was a pretty minor. Yeah, it was it was a minor infraction. There wasn't anything serious happening. So yeah, um, I, I got some other takes. I'm gonna get some more like real detailed information to throw into the main part of the podcast. Uh, but I wanted to have this talk with you guys and just give you kind of the preliminary information that I've got. So from what I understood is that he had an air freshener hanging from his uh, windshield, you know, from his uh, rear view mirror. And I know in a lot of states, that's something that they have an issue with. And they call it obstruction of, you know, your view. And you can't have anything in the windshield like that. Uh, and so, which I find really interesting because in Missouri, if you're not wearing a seatbelt, if you're, uh, if you got, you know, a cracked third brake light, which isn't even mandatory. If you have a cracked windshield, if you have window tint that's too dark, that's not a primary reason to stop you. <laughs> and that's not a primary mm-hmm. reason to pull you over. So you have to have something that is actually considered probable cause because those are considered secondary offenses. So it kind of struck me because the news is, you know, it, it's been reporting that it's because he had stuff hanging from his windshield. That's what they first noticed and they pulled him over. So maybe they got mm-hmm. some more PC afterwards, but their initial reason to look at him was he had an obstruction in his windshield. So basically they're, I'll be honest from what I can tell, it, it, they were looking for trouble and they found it. Okay. They pull mm-hmm. him over and he's got his girlfriend in the car with them. 
They take his information back to the vehicle, and there's three officers that you can see in the video. A black male uh, officer, a white female who's wearing the body cam, and then Mm -hmm. a white male who's older, who's standing on the opposite side of the car, being what they consider to be a cover officer, watching what's happening. And he almost looks like he has stripes. i got to go back and look at the video again. So he may have been a supervisor or a sergeant or something. But when they reapproached the car in the video, they explained to him that he's got a warrant and he needs to step out of the car. And he's compliant and gets out of the car, puts his hands behind his back. And then mm-hmm. at some point, as they're explaining that you have a warrant for your arrest, he decides, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go to jail today, and goes to jump back in his car. And mm-hmm. the officer wrestles him for a moment as the officer that's wearing the body cam comes closer, still no hands on, but says the words taser, taser a couple of times and then pulls her gun. And then as she's pointing it at him, she can tell that she's not, she doesn't have a clear shot at him for a taser or a gun. And mm-hmm. she tells the other officer again, taser, taser, taser. And so he jumps back and sees that her, she's got something in her hands. So he jumps back out of the way. The guy in the car kind of tenses up because he thinks the taser's coming and it's a mm-hmm. gun. And he puts it in gear, and just as he's about to pull off, bam, one shot's fired right through his chest. And then uh-huh. he, he peels off, and then she turns to them and literally was, I, I'll get a quote on it later, but she literally was just kind of like, oh, my gosh, I just shot yeah. him. She <laughs> okay. seemed shocked. She did seem shocked because in, it, it, there's a whole thing like where I, I've got some opinions about what went down. Um, but Wait, hold on. So I don't know any of this. The, the the cop pulled the gun for her or no, no no the female officer walked up as the as the black male officer was fighting with him in, trying to get him out of the car uh-huh. and so the female and walks around her, his left shoulder gun by mistake that's i don't know that, i'm going to debate that later i don't think it was by mistake i think it was because isn't it supposed to be on your dominant like yeah arm, basically and your tasers on the opposite side <laughs> there's a whole lot of things i think uh, like I, i'm i'll break it down later i there's a piece of information i need to get and it'll be in the main podcast and if i can get that piece of information then it it totally substantiates my opinion that she did not uh intend that she didn't actually think she had a taser but we'll go into that yeah oh, that's crazy to me even if she forgot what side it was on once she's aiming down it's uh, you're looking yeah. at your gun oh yeah there's a difference in weight and everything correct i, mean, you would I, I can tell you from experience number one I, I never carried a taser on my dominant side that it wasn't even an option you don't even practice drawing from your dominant side except for like an officer down drill like if your left arm's wrapped behind your back and you can't get to it then yeah you need to learn how to draw from your right hand and and fire the taser off however through our training, there's two things that are really kind of key here. Number one, you never use less lethal or less than lethal, or there's a lot of variants on how they want to structure it, but you don't use a taser unless you have lethal coverage, meaning you need somebody to have a firearm pointed at the subject so that if, it, if a gun is produced, a knife is produced, or it becomes a deadly force situation while the taser is going off, that they can react to it with deadly force because when you've got a taser in your hands, you do not have a deadly force option. Right. You can't you, you, and you're not in your train specifically not to have your pistol and your taser out at the same time because of sympathetic nervous reaction. So if you pull the trigger uh-huh. on the taser, you're probably going to pull the trigger on the gun, too. And so that's actually uh-huh. there's cases where that's happened when tasers first came out. So they put it into the training. Hey, you do not. Absolutely. You do not pull the taser out unless you have somebody who already has lethal coverage for you. Right. So that's that's the first kind of like error in either training or experience or the situation just dictated the wrong things. I'm actually curious whether she even was carrying a taser 
And, and I'll explain that again in the major part of the podcast. But to kind of break down what he actually had outstanding, I, I have a copy uh, because it's public information. I have a copy of his Mr. Wright's um, charge. What he had a pending warrant for was failure to appear on a drug possession charge, possession of marijuana, less than 43.5 grams. So it's not a felony. It's a user possession charge. So at mm-hmm. first I was like, okay, well, I mean, that happens. Go back and look at the details yeah. of the case. You know, October 2019 is when he gets popped for it. He, uh, mm-hmm. or is when is basically when they, they convict him of it because he failed to appear in court. So the judge, you mm-hmm. know, gives him a, a failure to appear warrant and it's been sitting since 2019 and he's just now getting picked up on it. So obviously he's, he doesn't have some other major criminal record. He hadn't been picked up in two years. And the only thing mm-hmm. that, you know, obviously we don't have his criminal record history, but I'm just saying it, it'd be, they'd be a little more concerned about him if there was a gun involved, if it was over 43 and a half, you know, grams of marijuana, those types of things, then we're talking more mm-hmm. serious charges. So then I was like, you know, I'm just going to pop in real quick. I'm just going to look at the state statute. Now, this is Minnesota state mm-hmm. statute 152.027 section 4A. All right. So I was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to, I'll be smart about this. I'm going to look at this and, and something struck me incredibly. Uh, this is just, this just the juxtaposition between what happened and what he was convicted of just uh-huh. it blows your mind. So subsection four says possession or sale of small amounts of marijuana, a, a person who unlawfully sells a small amount of marijuana um, for no remuneration, which basically means you're giving it, distributing it, whether you receive money or not, it's, and it's below a felony amount, or who unlawfully possesses a small amount of marijuana, is guilty of a petty misdemeanor, and shall be required to participate in a drug education program unless the judge, unless the court enters a written finding that the drug education program is inappropriate. The program must be approved mm-hmm. by the Mental Health Board, curriculum approved by the State Alcohol, Drug, and Abuse Authority. That... That right there was the entire breadth of the punishment that he would have received. If mm-hmm. he had been found convicted, he would have never served time. This They knocked mm-hmm. their laws already down on, on this. But the fact he didn't go to court, it became an arrestable offense. <laughs> and mm-hmm. it led to this. Yeah, like, that is well, well, this is sort of just, I mean, we've seen this reoccurring over the course of many years now where it's like, even if there's something that's unlawful being done, is that worth a life? Which generally it's not. Whether it's the guy that was, you know, selling cigarettes that he made or whatever out in that, on that New York corner street, you know what I mean? Or, or whatever it may be, whoever, you could argue like Michael Brown stealing the Swisher Sweets or whatever it was, but even George Floyd using a counterfeit bill. Right. Yeah. So that my other question, though, then would be, so I agree with you that like that's I mean, that's tragic. that That's what his punishment would have been. Yeah. And he basically lost his life over this whole situation. But at what point as you know, as a police officer, are you supposed to well, like are you supposed to put your gun when they're resisting arrest and trying to flee? Because he was obviously trying to jump back in his car and get moving you know what i mean like he Mm -hmm. he was he was looking to bolt you know what i mean and i i I obviously i don't think he should have been killed for any of this even if he was trying to flee or anything like that but at what point as a police officer are you supposed to pull out your gun and are you supposed to you know have have it pointed at him as they're trying to flee 
Yeah. We'll fast forward a little bit and then we're going to go back to what, as a police officer, like what kind of options you got available. Okay. So looking at the situation when the, when the trigger was pulled, it was pulled one time, which kind of tells me she probably thought she was pulling the trigger on a taser and the gun probably surprised her a little bit, but she still kept it aimed and she was aware of what happened as soon as it happened. Um, but if you look at that, she didn't pull the trigger 20 times. She pulled uh-huh. the trigger one time. Okay. So it, to say that she had any malice, I think is, is, is beyond, you know, like we, we I don't think that. Yeah. I don't think in her case. intent was to kill this kid. Right. And I don't, it did sound yeah. like a heat of the moment type of thing, especially with that cop yelling in her ear. Yeah. Taser, taser, taser. Well, she was yelling that she was yelling oh. taser, taser, taser at the other officer as he was fighting the guy. So, oh. yeah. So I'm sorry if I, if I conflated that issue earlier, but to go back as, as far as, options for law enforcement in these types of situations. Uh, obviously there's a lot of training on open hand techniques is what we call it. We're basically uh, close hand techniques are punching, kicking, assaulting. Okay. And we, we practice a lot. If somebody's not being assaultive to you, meaning they're not hurt, they're not physically trying to hurt you. They're just trying to resist arrest. Then we use open hand techniques to try to control the subject. Right. And we have special uh-huh. training, especially on how to get somebody out of a car we can go in like there's a whole thing I'm going to go into about the tactics leading up to that situation that could have prevented it 110%, but we'll, that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother ballpark. But, um, but when you're faced with that situation, you have to look at the totality of the circumstances that were known at the time, right? Nothing afterwards that they figured out about this guy, nothing, you know, beyond what's the, what they're staring at. And what they were staring at was a guy who's passively resistive, who's getting into a vehicle and trying to drive away. Okay, that is not a a situation where that person is is showing um, a propensity to cause you or your partner serious physical harm. Okay, so that's Mm -hmm. not that that'd be the deadly force scenario. This is clearly not a deadly force scenario. Here's the other information. We these officers had his name, had the vehicle he was in, knew exactly who he was, and they were about to take him in for a warrant. So this is not somebody who they don't know who it is, who just committed a violent felony, who needs to be pursued at all costs, right? Uh-huh. This is somebody who we know exactly who it is and where he lives and his phone number, all that information. They probably already collected at that point because they had the warrant, okay? So uh-huh. when he's resisting, it's fine. Keep trying to pull him out of the car and keep him from fleeing. That's your job. But uh-huh. when he's putting it in gear, or he's reaching around in the vehicle where you can't see what's going on. It is so tactically uh, retarded. If you don't mind me saying it is, it's just poor <laughs> officers decisions on that to try to stay engaged with somebody when they're getting into a vehicle. You don't know where he has weapons. You don't know what his intent truly <laughs> is. Why are you not backing away and getting some distance so that you can assess uh-huh. the situation and deescalate it possibly. Right. Uh-huh. And that's our first job. Well, first job is to deescalate. My question is part of that assessment, and I do agree that you are supposed to de-escalate everything first and foremost, but if you're seeing someone trying to flee or jump back in their car and they're speeding away and there's a potential police chase or something like that, and he, after getting shot, of course he got shot, but he then proceeded to hit another car. You know what I mean? So as a result of his injuries at the moment, yeah, yeah. but are are you concerned at that moment when you know that they're trying to flee by vehicle? Uh Uh-huh other people's risk or health risk on the road that are driving near the area or anything like that. Yeah. And you know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of policy and there's a lot of prior cases of these situations happening. And there's a lot of police departments. I would say the vast majority of police departments have adopted the idea that unless the person has just committed a violent felony against somebody else, or they're in a stolen vehicle or they're intoxicated, 
that what those actions were right there don't fall in any of those categories. And that was not a, a, a something that you would want to actually pursue with lights and sirens and have a police chase with. You let them, yeah. like if they get away from you, you let them go. You know exactly who they are. You give the information to the detectives and they go sit on the house and wait for him to pop up. They look for the vehicle. And when they find him, now they know this is a person that's known to resist. And you have a specialized unit come out, either your gang unit, your drug task force, your your felony unit, whatever. You got a lot of different options at every police department and every level from municipal to county to state. You can call on those resources. If you're a small little podunk town, you can call on some big resources to come in and say, this guy actively resisted us. We know where he's at. Let's go get him. You've already got the warrant for his arrest, and you can actually, in the process of tracking him down, finding where he's at, you can go apply for the next warrant for his felony fleeing. And then you've got two warrants and the judge can sign off right then and there. I see him in this house and I'm, and I'm filling an affidavit. Judge, will you sign the warrant? They will absolutely all day long sign that warrant. And you go in and you make entry and you handle it in a professional manner. Uh, so like as far as was there an, a need to be pulling out and, and creating a more dangerous situation? No, there wasn't. And to go further into that, this is kind of the crux of the issue for me tasing somebody while they're operating a motor vehicle is is pretty much universally known to be a bad idea if somebody's soaking yeah, they wet slam on the gas yeah if, if somebody's standing on yeah well if they're standing on the ledge right you don't tase them because they could fall off the ledge if they're in water you don't tase them because it could hurt them and a lot of people around them if they're mm -hmm. in a vehicle operating a motor vehicle you don't tase them because a the taser is probably not gonna be very successful for very long but if they lose control of the vehicle and run across the street and hit a kid well, now you're responsible, right? That puts that puts liability. Oh, well, look at that. Um, it's probably <laughs> the best way I'd ever seen. Oh boy, my kids, my kids. It keep seems like in the today's day and age, oh, are scared for their lives almost. And um, there was this one video of this woman getting pulled over. Cops were all around her, guns drawn, and everything, and she looked terrified. And this police chief was there as well and he came up and he told everyone to put their guns down and he had it. and he opened the door and hugged her and said everything is okay and she calmed down and she went with them but I, it was honestly the best way best handling of that type of situation i've ever seen yeah so you know i i just think there was other options i'm not i'm not trying to monday morning quarterback it but i'm trying to say best practices and the things that have, have been trained within the industry for a long period of time don't support the actions that we saw today well, sure. how about this? This was sort of odd to me that they released the. This happened yesterday or last night. <laughs> well, they released the police cam. You realize so what police quickly. department this is, right? Mm, well, St. Paul, I'm assuming, right? The St. Paul, Minneapolis. Mm -hmm. Right? The same ones but that dealt with George Floyd. Well, they didn't, yeah, I know, but they didn't, uh, it didn't take, or it took forever for the George yeah. Floyd tape to drop. That's, that's my point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you just made the point for me. They learned a lesson. They learned that you've got to get out in front of it as quickly as possible because these are political nightmares because they didn't release the video and made them look culpable and made them look like they were trying mm -hmm. to cover something up, which led to even more violence, which led to more rioting. And that's what they're trying to avoid. They're trying to get out in front of it and get as much information as they can. And I understand, like, mm -hmm. it, like coming from that background, I know what kind of hoops are being, what, what kind of hurdles are being basically bypassed completely to be able to get that stuff out so quickly because the prosecutor has to approve that type of evidentiary, uh, you know, photography going out to the public. That's not just something you do 
willy-nilly. That's you've, You basically have to do it knowing that uh, you're giving up a lot of information really early on that may come back to haunt you because there may be things that are in that video that people like me <laughs> are going to dissect uh, that have to do mm-hmm. with their department's training and standards of practice. So there's... Mm-hmm. Um, well, well, I mean, sometimes I feel like it's not even blame. I mean, it's not even uh, specific with the George Floyd case. I guarantee you, I've never had police training or anything like that. But I guarantee you, if I took the same police training to that cop who killed George Floyd, and you know, there's I mean, it, the, the that pathologist came out and said that it actually there's no reasonable evidence that shows that he died from fentanyl that night. Um, there, I bet though that if I took the police training, that I would. Definitely not be trained to keep my knee on a dude's back three minutes after he's unconscious. Well, this leads me to sort of a question that's regarding, I guess, all of this is how much of like a quote unquote industry standard was this within the police force where like these practices would happen and these 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 people dying would be, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's frequent, but I'm saying that now it's so politicized where we basically know every single time it happens almost. But I'm sure 10 years ago. It was probably happening just as often, if not more, and it wasn't politicized, mainly because body cam footage. But then also, was it, it? It seemed like back then it was almost more, you know, morally acceptable. Hey, well, this guy broke a crime, so you break a crime, you risk being killed or you risk dying or whatever that may be. Is that sort of a thought process within a lot of, you know, at least from your experience, a lot of, you know, police officers' heads, at least back then, compared to now? I know things are changing. But well, it seems like sometimes it's like, you know, the, the idea that you could, you know, the, the, it doesn't seem like the action in which like you're, you're pulling a gun on someone and you're shooting somebody, you're not actively thinking in real time about, hey, this is, I mean, this is what you're talking about. The, what he was going to go to jail for was almost, he wouldn't have served time or whatever it may be. They're not taking that into a, uh, account and they're like, okay, well now this is escalated to this point. I didn't even care about the original circumstance in which, you know, led up to this. Now I'm either a firing a gun or whatever, like, you know, it's gotten to this point. You know what I'm saying? Well, I can tell you that within law enforcement community that I was a part of, uh, there wasn't anything overt, um, especially prior to Ferguson. That's, you know, I was, I was in prior to Ferguson and I was in a bit after Ferguson. And, and what I can tell you is uh, there was a dynamic shift that occurred there was a lot more officers Uh that were like, man, go ahead and strap me up with that body cam because I need Uh some kind of protection for myself because it's, it's so easily skewed in the public's eye what occurred. And a lot of officers feel defensive about their position and their, their actions. Right. And they Uh want to be right. We, especially when I was in law enforcement, I wanted to defend the actions of officers that I was seeing. And so there is a culture of that that's built in. It's inherent. And I don't think it's bad Uh because you will find it in any high risk, um, life and death group. You're going to find it amongst paramedics and EMTs. You'll find it in fire Uh service. You're going to find it in the military, every branch of the military. The more action you see, the more problems you deal with, the more you feel like you've got something in common with those that are doing the same job as you and you want to jump to their defense. So I wouldn't say it was a malice. It, like a, a, an ag- Oh, I, I never assume that it is completely malice. And one thing I will say, too, is this is one of those jobs where not only are you risking your life every day, but you are specifically, you know, especially at least today, now in this time, you have to walk that line perfectly and you can't waver. You can't stray. You can't accidentally slip because if you do something like this could occur. So, and, and then this isn't even 
taking into account all the high stress situations that a lot of these individuals see every single day or, or whatever, at least at a way larger frequency than a normal person. You know what I mean? Or now you're, you have those stresses, you know, what could be worst case scenario as far as protecting yourself, but then you're also needing to now take into account that, Hey, like, you know, this, I, I have to go through all these different barriers before I reach this point where I'm pulling a gun and shooting somebody versus, you know, they don't have to go through those barriers. So you got to walk a, a perfect line almost. You have to be perfect almost 100% of the time. Like it's one of the few jobs where you need to be almost perfect. Otherwise, you know, yeah, stuff like this happens. Or That's why, okay, so the, the major glaring issue with this case is the fact that this officer clearly didn't have a training regiment that prevented the misuse of a tool, right? Mm-hmm. We could have. This could have been the same equivalent between trying to grab a taser when you only needed pepper spray, right? Like, mm-hmm. oops, I grabbed the wrong item and did the wrong thing. And I got to tell you, there's a part of that that just really bothers me because every day you put a taser on your side, you're testing the taser. You're testing to make sure the camera's working. You're making sure the taser is charged and making sure that it properly mm-hmm. electrically deploys and you make sure that the cartridges are ready to go. So there's no taser model that's made that doesn't have test functions and that doesn't have a camera on it nowadays. Like, that's just what its job is. So she knows where it goes on her uniform every day. She pulls it off well, and well, she puts it on. So what's is- your actual take then on it? Because you seem to be, you're mentioning, hey, she only shot once. She was yelling taser, taser, taser. Then on the other side of the coin, it seems like she had to ignore a handful of, you know, obvious. Here's my take. You know what the OODA loop is, right? You observe, you orient, you decide, and you act. And she got Mm -hmm. stuck in that process of observing and orienting herself. And she waited too long to decide and to act. And she was, she, you know, like, and I'm saying she, but this is any officer is, is susceptible to these issues. And she didn't uh-huh. have the training to keep her mind clear in that high stress situation. So that's a part of just being prepared for the job every day is knowing I'm going to face some bad stuff and I've got to be as yeah. sharp as attack. So that's number one. Number two, you got training issues with you pulled the wrong thing. Okay. That's, that's another one. What I think was occurring is she saw this happen. Number one, as a, I, there's so many things I want to hit on. Just to give you a a brief little tidbit as far as the officer that was wearing the body cam, she was three to five feet minimum away from the officer who was placing somebody into handcuffs. That is horrible cover. And and like there's you have a job. You're either the contact officer or you are the cover officer. The contact officer is the one that's going to talk, the one that's going to put handcuffs on, the one that's going to make the decision on everything. The cover officer's job is to make sure that he can do his job safely. You had a third officer Mm -hmm. there that was watching the only other person in that car he had his eyes on. So she had the freedom and should have the training to understand that her job is to come over as he starts the handcuffing process. She's supposed to put a hand on and continue to put this guy in a disadvantageous position. You have him spread his feet out, have him pull his hips back away from the vehicle so some of his weight's on the car so you can feel when he's trying to push off. You know, you can get some cues from what's happening and just assist Mm -hmm. the other officer and it it helps that person know, okay, there's two people that are already hands-on with me. If I try to resist now, it's probably not going to work out as well as if I have one officer loosely holding on to me. 
So that's number uh-huh. one. She she could have possibly done a better job there. All right, I'm not, I'm not going to Monday morning quarterback too much. I'll just say that that's a tactical error. If I'm training another officer what to do, don't do that. Okay. Uh, but the uh-huh. next piece of this is when he goes in the vehicle and is trying to rip this guy out as the guy's jumping in. She comes around and you can clearly see in the video a yellow taser on the side of that officer, and she pulls her gun out. I suspect she was not even carrying a taser and I can't confirm that yet. So that's complete speculation on me. That is not factual, but if it ends up being the case that she was not even carrying a taser, I know exactly what happened is she saw the officer who was fighting him with the taser and said, Hey, taser, taser, like, Hey dude, you've got a taser on your side, grab it. And then she had her gun out for lethal coverage to protect her fellow officer. Right. Well, mm-hmm. then you see that officer kind of he's, he keeps kind of going back and in and out and not sure what he can, can and can't do, turns and sees her gun out as she's yelling taser again at him. And you can tell that she's trying to get close, but she's trying to stay back because she knows she has lethal force out. That's the other thing is like I could tell by the way she was moving. She understood she had lethal force out because she was trying to position herself to see him and not flag her buddy, which you would also do with the taser, too. But with a taser, you know that you can just you can literally just put it to the person's leg and at least have a drive stun. At least you can make contact with them. And that helps. She didn't try to put it at the guy's leg or anything until her fellow officer jumped back with a surprised look on her face. I think that cued her in at that moment to think, Holy crap, something just happened. Uh-huh. And it just in natural reaction, she pulled the trigger because she saw this car start moving and she saw her partner spinning around with a surprised look on his face, not knowing if he had just been stabbed, shot, something. Because you, your sensories are working overtime and you're having sensory overload. And so every little detail just amplifies your reaction. And I think she just uh-huh. reacted to that situation as he jumped out of the way. She came in a little bit closer, pulled the trigger one time and realized I just shot a gun. So I don't know uh-huh. if she expected that she actually had a taser in her hand or if she realized, I, oh, my gosh, I literally just had to shoot somebody in the line of duty. It's It could go either way. That cookie can crumble uh-huh. either way. And I think it falls on the idea of whether she actually had a taser on her or not. Because if she had a taser and was carrying it all the time, I, then you, there's an argument to say, like, she should have known she was grabbing a gun, not a taser. But uh-huh. on the same uh-huh. token, if she, was, if she wasn't carrying a taser, she knew she was getting lethal force out and was trying to get her fellow officer to pull the taser and to use it. And when he couldn't and he jumps back, she doesn't know if he's about to get drugged under the car and decides to take a shot at the guy to try to stop the threat. Like I can see all uh-huh. these scenarios possibly playing out in an officer's head when they're in that, that critical but life. But is situation. it really a threat, though, once they're, they've escaped? That's what I'm saying. It's not about whether it actually is. The question is, was it perceived? And I think that she was stuck in a, in a deep loop where she couldn't come up with a solution. So what you're saying is, reasonable. Eric, a woman shouldn't do a man's job. Oh, definitely not. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, <get> <laughs> I can tell you there are, I have walked into life and death situations with some female officers that uh, absolutely know what they're doing. They are cool headed. Oh, yeah. They, are, I was they know what they're doing. Oh, I know you are. I just got to throw <laughs> one out there I for the women of the force. That's a prime example, man. She, <laughs> she could beat the shit out of Caleb and I combined, man. Like, she, she's a monster, man. I feel like she has a bigger clitoris than I have a dick. <laughs> she does. No, but going back <laughs> to what you were saying, though, my question then is, because it, it seems like like, I because I, I was thinking about it, like, and you brought up very, very good points regarding maybe she didn't even have a taser to begin with. I believe the the police, the chief of police stated that she did, 
since the firearm, her actual firearm is on her dominant side, obviously. But he was already painting the picture in the press conference and the mayor of St. Paul got up there as well. He was painting the picture that she made an error uh, and didn't, you know, she obviously thought that she had her taser and she actually didn't. But that all being said, I, I agree with you that it wouldn't be wise to tase somebody when they're in the front seat of a car, you know, when they could just hit the you know, their foot on the gas. Oh yeah. She, and she's probably, like it, it's hard to hear in the camera, but I mean, if, if you're there, I've been in those situations and, and you're hearing the engine rev, you're seeing them grabbing for the shift handle, trying to put it in gear. Uh, you realize yeah. the peril that your partner's in because you're in a doorway and there's not much room to actually join the fight. And it's, mm-hmm. it's a very confusing, very tough situation. And that's why yeah. I said, I, you know, training my training, uh, at least the, the school of thought that I ended up with through my training, was that in that situation, it's safer for me, if I'm the officer that's you know actually in there fighting this guy, it's safer for me to just get out of that compartment and get to a safer location so that if he does produce a weapon or if he does drive off, I'm not stuck in the vehicle hanging out. That's just, you know, like, yeah, again, for sure. I'm going home to my family and we can catch this dude anytime. We know who he is. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and yeah. honestly, I think there's a bit of a difference too with the, the time you were a cop. Cause I mean, being a cop is, I feel like changed a bit over the last five, four or five years. years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, like I, they, they have kind of a bigger target on their back immediately. There's this high tension when you're doing a simple traffic stop. If, mm-hmm. I feel like there's just a higher tension that you feel not only as a person, but as a cop nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, and, th- and that's and, why this is so difficult is because the reason why I started getting pretty heated about this particular situation was this to me is like it's, it's more uh, clear cut in a lot of ways as far as what the problems are, because I, I've been in those shoes. I have been the officer watching one of my partners mm-hmm. fighting in the car and wanting to get in there and help them help rip them out and trying to provide them cover in case it turns deadly and all those things going through your head. So I, I totally get the position she was in. And I just, I look at I look at the situation and I say, I know exactly what this problem is. This goes back to a core issue of we have very ill-trained officers that are in big cities uh-huh. dealing with a lot of people all the time. And when you have, you know, nearly a million officers here in the United States and they're, they're, you know, they're dealing with 300 and, 40 million people here in the States, something like that. I don't even know. I'm just throwing numbers Uh out, but like you look at the number of contacts they have with people on a regular basis and then how many, you know, critical situations they get into within their career, let alone a single year, let alone a single week. Then it starts Uh to show that like, you know, there's, there's a definitely a high level of expectation that we have, but that we are willfully undertrained as a police force. And oh yeah! Oh for sure! Yeah, no, police training is definitely a big part of it. We're just and anyone can become a cop. That's the, that's the problem. Anyone can become a cop. They've they've wanted to basically move to that standard, and there's a whole uh-huh. lot of things I could say about that. As as far as my time going through, you know, a police academy, there's definitely a standard change, and it's not so much just to get anybody in the door, but it's to say, well, what's what's more reasonable about what you're actually doing with, with your job. Uh, you know, like I, I would tell you legitimately, I think there's a different level of training that you need if you're a rural county sheriff versus working downtown oh, in a major metropolitan. But we need to, I feel like we need to treat the job of policing and to be a cop because you're, I mean, the job of a cop is to serve and protect or they're supposed to protect and we're supposed to try and over the course of a period of time, limit the amount of crime that occurs in areas and things like that. And we just see the failure of policing and the failure of the justice system. When you see the same communities stricken with the same level of crimes, the same, you know, 
whatever rates that haven't changed over 40 years. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And I I feel like that needs to help change. But I think that we need to look at cops the same way we look at like a lawyer or a doctor. I want to know that when I call the cops or when a cop is involved, I want to know that, hey, he's, you know, or she is even keel and the best person that could be in this situation at this given time. It's not going to escalate that will de-escalate that has proper training to where you don't have to worry about someone, you know, putting their knee on your neck for nine and a half minutes. You know, and whether not it's just that, that one video training. that just came out that, that, that was filmed like four months ago that uh, about that lieutenant command or something in the army or I, I and, maybe the seat, yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he, he literally was just like, I'm scared for my life. What did I do wrong? And the cop was like, yeah, you should be get out of the car. That cop was fired, though. This happened four years ago. He's suing the— No, no, not four years, four months. Or four months, four months, excuse me. But that cop was fired. But, yeah, some of the—you don't want you don't want police officers that are, you know, get a kick out of having authority or power over other people. You want people to actually help and be there. Yeah, clear, calm-minded that can actually de-escalate yeah. the situation. Because that's not going to help anything, saying you should be scared <laughs> it's for like, your life. It's like, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's like I would— this and this it's goes hard back to, have to the money to train everyone like a Navy SEAL and be very calculated and very cool and calm and and we've had that talk before. Yeah, situations. That's that's the point I was trying to get at is that um, I, I spoke about this with you know my cousin today. I spoke about this with family members, and I said the big issue for me is we don't have good enough training, we don't have high enough standards, and we have horrible horrible laws to enforce. So when we can, we, anytime we can attack any of those issues, it needs to be done because I, I strongly believe that we need a thin blue line protecting us. Do I think we oh, need, yeah. do I think we need warm bodies? No, I think we need the best bodies, the brightest minds. This is one yeah, of those issues. That's what I'm saying. Treat it like, treat it like a lawyer, treat it like being a doctor. Like that's how, that's how difficult of a job it would need to be. And if you do make it, you need to obviously be paid far better than, you know, like you're asking some people that aren't probably the best suited anyways to go out there and risk their lives day in and day out yeah. for something where they're probably not getting paid all that much. And then you just see, you know, like it, it's, there's, it's like there's the same argument with just, teachers, you know, they should be paid way more by correct, have, like yeah. putting our children's education in their hands. And we're just like, all right, well, here's the like target, a though, the target though. The target should be on the back of the cops. The target should be on the actual, you know, what you were talking about, certain laws. We, we need to look at laws and, and reform certain laws too, not just reform the cops and not just change tactics of what they're allowed to do. And yeah, not no, this guy do. wouldn't even have a warrant if the war on drugs, I mean, like, that, that's one of the dumbest. I mean, people should just be able to do what they want to their bodies. If they're fucking themselves up, that sucks. But well, I here's, mean, that's their choice. And, and to play on that, Jake, I think that's why I've been a little fired up about this too, because I really am kind of a libertarian at heart when it comes to personal choices, right? Um, I grew up in a very conservative home and believed truly that you should uh, not have abortions. You shouldn't drink. You should, there's a whole laundry list of things I thought you couldn't do in society. And as I grew older, I'm like, you know, let people do what they're going to do. As long as they're not hurting others, let's be okay with it. And so when I saw Colorado pass these marijuana laws, decriminalizing marijuana possession and use, I was like, this might be a new direction that's going to be difficult for people to adjust to, but will bring a whole new era of realizing that we're all human, okay? (laughs) Setting some Mm -hmm. impossibly high standard for people is just silly. Now, I guess what's getting to me and what made me so sad about this, Jake, was I was thinking about this man, Mr. Wright, if he had lived in Colorado, he'd still be alive. 
because mm-hmm. had yeah. he been pulled over and was in possession of marijuana, it would have been nothing, nothing burglary, mm-hmm. period. And he clearly wasn't out committing a bunch of other crimes because he wasn't getting picked up for over, well, basically right at, you know, a year and a half, almost two years. He hasn't mm-hmm. been picked up for that warrant. It's been outstanding and he's never been pulled over. If he got pulled yeah. over, he would have been pulled in for that. If he had done any other crime, he would have been pulled in for that. So he's got a year and a half of not doing anything wrong, and and yet he still got this conviction that he needs to go sit in front of a judge for for the judge to assign him to go to a class. That's the mm-hmm. extent of getting him in front of the judge. That's the whole purpose to go have him put in handcuffs and put in the back of a patrol car, was so he could well, go sit in the classroom. Yeah, that's crazy. The, the difference is like three hundred miles or like five hundred miles. Well, what's that's, weird though is that's the difference. Almost yeah. today, if the if the cops if their job is to enforce the law, which it is, and some of those laws are skewed in certain ways, one way or another, or whatever it may be, whether it's nonviolent drug offenses, whatever it may be, um, you're almost asking the best type of cops to be somewhat rogue individuals and make judgment calls based on like, hey, I could completely, if I chose to, I could fuck you. But I'm choosing not to because you you at least have the wherewithal of where that can go. Like that kid, he was 20 years old. Those offenses took place, I'm guessing, when he was 18 or 19 years old and if it was a year and a half. You know, so Correct, he's yeah. a kid and he has that in front of him and the, the marijuana possession and all that shit. And it led to him losing his life when it was a nonviolent drug offense. And it's one of those things to where. Again, it's almost like we, I mean, nothing can be done until laws are changed at a widespread well, what's level. What's that well, one country? That one country where it decriminalized all drugs Portugal. and not only crime rates down, with but the drug like, abuse rate. Yeah, drug, drug, yeah. drug abuse is down. Yeah, the drug abuse rate was down too in Portugal after decriminalizing yeah, everything. Was. But. Well, so Again, here's like so my, that was like that's like the high level argument, um, in my opinion, as far as like what could have prevented the situation. There's many others. One of the things that really kind of to me is is very difficult about the situation is he. There's a, a part of reality to he his actions led to his death in a way. Yeah. Now, yeah, I, know. I part of this is the perception and the issues that have been around there. I mean, like he's got it in his head. He probably, um, okay. Now I'm just hyperbolizing. So I'm sorry for this, but this is a guy who probably had the opportunity. I'll just put it, say it that way. He probably had the opportunity to be at the heart of the George Floyd protests. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is a guy who has seen it up front and close. This is his community. He knows what this police department's about. He's got his perception of what they're going to do to him. If he gets mm-hmm. busted, and if he has problems with them. And so I'm not excusing his actions whatsoever because he gave himself a felony when he resisted arrest and tried to flee. Okay. So that, that uh-huh. okay, but that can be settled in court. Again, I would really like to see law enforcement change perspectives to what, what is the level of severity that we need to take with a particular situation? At what point do we uh-huh. say, let's deescalate this problem so we don't have an accidental shooting? You know, like, uh-huh. yeah, or and, what's, at what point do they say it's not worth it? Well, but the, the and that's get. what I'm trying to get at is like the tactics and the training that led to that situation are what just guts me because mm-hmm. part of the training that I have, especially if there's like in that situation, if you just plop me there and and I was training a, an officer what they should do in that situation, you know what I would have told them? I'd say you had your cover officer watching that passenger of the vehicle. You were in contact with the subject why you had another officer with you that could assist you with the arrest. You easily could have had the subject walk away from the driver's compartment of the vehicle, which is the most dangerous place. 
They could have weapons. Uh They could have anything could be there. So you want to get them away from that. Why did you leave the door open? And Uh there Uh is a flaw in law enforcement training that I have heard parroted before, and it needs to be corrected. And it's all based off of the Fourth Amendment. And I know this is going to sound crazy, but the Fourth Amendment allowed that situation to happen that we saw on tape. Okay? Here's how. The Fourth Amendment, and because of subsequent cases that have come out of the Supreme Court rulings, says that as an officer, when you arrest somebody, you can do a search incident to arrest, meaning that if you, you know, like if I pull you out of your house, I can look in the vicinity that you're in real quick for any evidence of the crime that you just committed. I can't uh-huh. go everywhere, right? But we have a, an exception for vehicles because they're mobile, that before that vehicle leaves, you need to search that without a warrant because you arrested somebody, okay? And so uh-huh. it's been trained into many officers' heads that as they pull somebody out of the vehicle, if they close that door, it's now a secured vehicle and they need a warrant to get back into it. And they also have this idea that they have the opportunity to frisk the vehicle like you would frisk a person. And it's what we call a Terry stop. And you would basically be able to check it for weapons, and that sort of thing. If there is furtive movements or if there was some sort of reason that led you to believe that there was something wrong going on right there in that vicinity of where he sat. And so I think what was going through that officer's head that's was so open ended, though. I know. And that's why it's that's why I'm saying we need to just root this problem out, because I think when that officer pulls him out, it's probably going through his head, through his training, through his course of experience that you leave that door open so that you can, after you cuff him, you can reach back in the vehicle and check for anything that you, weapons, that sort of thing. And you don't have to worry about, you know, breaking the law and breaking, you know, obstructing his rights to, you know, his personal property. So you leave the door open because then you're not breaking the law or then Uh you're, you're not, it doesn't look as bad on camera. And, had that not been the case, what I would have told any officer I'm training, your number one priority is safety and the safety of others. Okay. So uh-huh. when you pull this guy out of the car, you try to get that door closed as quickly as possible because that, that buys you more time. If there is a weapon in there that gives you more of a reason to be safe. Okay. And then why uh-huh. are we still standing in the roadway? If we're going to handcuff somebody and, and they're being compliant, which he was verbally and physically compliant at the, at the initiation of, of pulling him out of the vehicle, you can have him walk back. you got two officers there. You can literally still put hands on him and say, just put your hands behind your back. And we have a technique for holding the fingers and just saying, we're just going to walk back to the back of the car here. And then and I'm going to talk to you. Okay. So we have a way to control mm-hmm. and escort this person to the back of the vehicle so that they're away from the passenger. They're away from, from the driver's compartment. It's safer for everyone. And if he decides at some point at the back of the vehicle, he wants to take off. Now we've got a little more time and a little more distance for a taser to be actually effective before he gets to the car. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's just a lot of tactical errors, a lot of training lapses that have occurred Uh in those officers' lives that can lead to that. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Do what? I said, what's more effective than a gun? (laughs) Well, we just found out, right? Nothing. It's, (laughs) Like it's just sad. It's um. You know, well, this I was... is, but I don't want to conflate issues of like, basically, because I do agree with you in this case. But you do hear like a lot of like going back to Stephen Crowder, who's just a partisan hack. If it falls on the right yeah. side of the line, he's going to find a way to make it his belief or what he thinks is correct or whatever. But he was touching base on. And he's a cock holster for the right. Yeah. Well. Well. For the like political right, not like a libertarian type person or whatever. But nonetheless. He was referring to the George Floyd situation, and you could already see the lawyer, too, the, like uh, David Chauvin's lawyer. Um, you could see that all these people are pointing towards 
it's an issue with the way these people are trained and they're trained a certain way and they're trying to look back on it. But also you can't, you can't just say that and also not have the wherewithal as a police officer. And David Chauvin was a cop that was actually in charge. Like the people, the other cops that were around him, he was in charge of all of them. It would be like the equivalent of like going out and doing a ride along with your team lead or something like that as an insurance adjuster. You know what I mean? Like he was that type of person. So I do understand other cops like, okay, well, I don't know if I'm supposed to say anything or not say anything or whatever, but having your knee on the back of someone's neck for nine and a half minutes and they're not responsive for whatever, two and a half, three minutes of that, you Which should have a wherewithal, whether that was trained that. or not. You know what I mean? Like you should know. I think that, I think that intelligence and also it's a, it's a moral issue too when someone's not moving and you're still subduing them or whatever it may be. I think that we can't just always blame the the training itself because training's updated all the time and that's what that one lawyer was talking about too i was saying that now just because five years ago they started treating or training people a new way to subdue someone in this manner it doesn't mean that the way that Derek chauvin learned 15 years ago how to do it it can't still be used but now they're just teaching a new way you know what i'm saying yeah it is so subjective the force continuum is a whole podcast of its own where it's it's subjective it's in the eyes of the beholder and it's all about reasonableness AKA whatever you can explain. So as long as you can justify your actions on paper and in front of a judge, then you're okay. And, and that is something where it's, it is difficult because we can't, it is a very subjective thing to say, we're going to use force on someone because um, if you try to be objective about it and say, you know, you have to, you would have to come up with every scenario and give the officer the answer for every scenario before it happens. And you can't do that. So it's, it's mm-hmm. naturally, it has to be a subjective matter when you apply force to another human being. But you should also have officers trained well enough that they're confident in their abilities to control somebody without applying too much force. And that falls on the administration, that falls on the training, and that falls on the habits that are built within the police department in dealing with people like George Floyd when they're being actively resistive uh, and, and they're you know possibly under the influence of narcotics you've you've got to be trained and experienced in that and the problem is is too much of the experience happens on the street and not Uh enough training it's so much more effective when you have a situation that doesn't go well before it turns into george floyd dying that you Uh i guarantee officer chauvin has had something in his past a similar situation that didn't end with somebody dying and so Uh when that happened and maybe it went a little ugly maybe it didn't go as well as everybody had hoped Maybe if they had actually debriefed that situation, used it for training, and actually tried to train other officers as well as retrain him, not to say, hey, you're a total screw-up, but to say, hey, can we improve? Can we do this better? Is there a new tactic or a new skill set that we can learn that could help us in this? Can we? F- and I guarantee as a department right now, the Minneapolis Police Department is thinking, you know, we really need to make a focus on rendering first aid and understanding the physiology of human beings and the actions that we're taking on them. And there's going to, I guarantee oh, yeah. you, they've already That's done in-service training on that. Make cops jujitsu black belts. There's no jujitsu black belts. Yes. Like, make them, or brown belts or something like that. Like, make the qualifications, like I told you, as difficult, you know, like a four or five-year training. Like, you got to be, you got to go to school for eight years to become a doctor, you know what I mean? And, like, two years of residency, all of that. Like, this job is that important because it, it is a public safety thing, just like doctors. You know what I mean? It truly is. Like, you are really in the, in your community. You The health of people come first. And the, and the people in the community you don't want to harm by doing something incorrectly just based on, you know, it being a practice or something that you've done in the past where you've gotten sort of away with it in the sense that no one died or anything like that. 
but yeah. they just have the wherewithal to do so. And that's why I think that sometimes I feel like we can go in opposite directions trying to fix the issue. Like the, the topics and what you're bringing up as far as solutions to to this and how it, it is a it's a training issue, but it's also there's work runs and there's laws and, and going back to the Fourth Amendment and how how basically this could that it would help if you could just close the door, walk the guy on the other side of the street or behind the car, whatever it is, keep him away from the driver's side and, and go things go through it like that. You would think that just it would take a group of smart cops or former cops to figure out some of this stuff to prevent this. Cause this is obviously it's evident now that it's not like cops want to be on the news. No, all the fucking they don't. Time, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. like, like it's not like they want to be scolded or these communities and they already have a, a uh, target on their back where they're trying to lessen that probably as much as possible you know what i mean so i think that i have a i have a question for you eric what are like the psychological background tests for a cop because i mean i think about the george floyd case and like how george floyd fucking begging for his mother crying and this guy still's not having it putting his knee on his back the, the guy eventually passes out still puts his knee on his back for three more minutes like what are the psychological background tests for these cops well, you're, you're asking a tough question because, I, well, it's not so much a tough question as I think you're asking the wrong question. The real question is, it's not so much what is the screening to get in, it's what is the screening that helps you stay. What, it, what do we have in place in any law enforcement that helps officers when they deal with critical situations to be able to process through it? Because these are human beings. And if you don't treat them like human beings and you don't give an opportunity to receive counseling without stipulation, right? If an officer goes and gets counseling and people hear about it, Oh, well, watch out. So-and-so had to go get counseling. They're obviously struggling mentally, right? And so now there's a stipulation. Well, I think and, that's, and, I and think so that's insane. if we get rid of the stipulations around mental health and we start understanding that officers have PTSD on a daily basis, what yep. happens when that doesn't get uh -huh. treated is you get callousness and cold-hearted behavior. And it's not because uh -huh. they're mean people, because everybody will tell you, that is my best friend, that is my ride or die, that dude has my back, he's a good human being, he wants everyone to live, he, wants e he would never want to kill someone. I guarantee those uh -huh. are the words that come out of every officer's mouth about every officer you see in the news that did something wrong. And what happens uh -huh. is they don't have an opportunity to fix the mental health component as they're going through the career. And it builds up over time. And you have some officers that are better at it than others. Some officers are able to deal with the mental health side of it because they have really good family, strong family ties. Some of them have, you know, really healthy outlets. They're in community groups and church groups. Well, that job you know, is going to wear sort of on thing. you no matter what. For you know sure. What I mean? Like no, no matter what, just seeing that hmm. day in and day out, hmm. that changes you as a person. And it does. What if you have these these cops saying like, oh yeah, no, he's ride or die, you know, he's my best friend. But it's these guys that psychologically maybe aren't all there, and well, they put up that facade that they are that ride or die, what's, die what's guy. Shitty. You. But when they're out in the streets, they don't have any disregard for human beings' lives. Well, what's shitty about that though is it's also you could have the perfect person with the perfect mental health and all of this, but humans themselves are none of us are perfect. I've been doing my job for seven years now and i still make mistakes every once in a while everyone can make a job you could have a career job and still make a mistake 30 40 years into it you know what i mean it just takes one day one moment in time to make a fatal mistake you know what i mean you, and that's, whether and that's the point yeah whether you're climbing a roof and and risking your life that way or you're standing in front of somebody that's got a firearm pointed at you as you're walking around a vehicle you're, you're facing life and death in, in all aspects of life we all are we all have that moment that critical point 
And really what it boils down to is an officer knows every day he goes to work. He's he's facing real stuff. Yeah, there's a chance he's going to get to I've seen that one. Have you have you seen that one video, Eric, where the, these two cops, it seemed like a chill situation. This white dude was in the car. And they told him to get out. And he's like, I don't want to or something like that. And they're like, you need to get out. Or the, the, he committed some sort of crime. And then immediately he just pulls out a gun and starts popping him. And one of the cops dies. It was a really hard video to watch. And the cop got shot. You can see his body cam. And it, it was it was just bad. So I can I can also see that side of it where where the, anything can happen and it nobody yeah, being that person's partner or the other cop there on site seeing that in real time and then now they have to live and do this job for the next however many years twenty years or whatever yeah. knowing that they've now seen worst case now and they now know what that's like just like a regular what seemed to be like a regular traffic stop. Correct, mm-hmm. and that's why I think the the continuation of uh, mental evaluation. And to destigmatize uh, mental health as mental a portion health, of, yeah. of you know how you cope with like how do you maintain an officer's mental health for thirty years? It hasn't been studied because nobody's even tried to understand what mm-hmm. mental health issues there are and actually tackle them. And we understand because people are going and actually getting help themselves now under the radar. We understand that PTSD is one of the major issues. You also have um, you know CTE, just like you have in professional sports. You get that a lot mm-hmm. in law enforcement because every time you get OJ into a brawl, a prime example of that. Yeah, but when, anytime you get to get into a brawl, a lot of times when you're training and you're doing your defensive tactics training, you're slamming each other to the mat. You're yeah. tackling somebody that's running from you. You fall off of a, a you know off the an embankment. Um, CTE becomes an issue there. Um, you've got all kinds of mental health and and physical health stuff that are constantly attacking you as as you're going through a career. And so there needs to be checkups along the way. It, it should not be just a oh, as long as you're healthy, you're staying here. And then oh, if you start showing signs of not being healthy, we're just going to fire you. Well, I'm sorry. That's kind of like, are you going to go tell a soldier because he's experienced so many crazy things in his career as a soldier that we're just going to go back to civilian life, enjoy it because we're not going to support you anymore. And then you let those mental health problems go back out onto the street without addressing them. Mm -hmm. Like where's the efficacy in that? Where, where, where's all the, that is, is, that's going into a whole other thing with like homeless population and, and being in the military and all of that, how we sort of, we have cast aside some people that are obviously mentally not stable. And that's one reason why the homeless population is what it is today. You know what I mean? Just not yeah. being all there and then being sort of cast away the stigmatization mm-hmm. of mental health and how, and I don't even, I don't know why. Cause I guess, I guess I was born, you know, late enough to where it, I, I've always felt like it wasn't, super stigmatized because so many people I know have suffered with depression or, you know, I, I've had friends that, you know, I've gone through drug abuse issues well, I'll tell you or why. depression or by, because they're depressed. And, it, and it's because somebody like blazed anxiety. a trail. There was, there was somebody that came before you that blazed a trail to help destigmatize it for teenagers, Be, you know, that mm-hmm. helped destigmatize it for kids who have been in rough family environments. And, and uh-huh. it, the more awareness it's created, the more understanding, the more study that's done, the more we start to appreciate how important it is to have mental health professionals doing things, going out there and checking up mm-hmm. on others. And I think that law enforcement, fire, EMS are those areas that really have been neglected over time. And mm-hmm. we have a lot more support nationally for soldiers, military, uh, understanding that th- that's an issue for them, rotating back into civilian life. But we just haven't got to that point. That we're doing it for mm-hmm. law enforcement. And fellas, I think the answer is magic mushrooms. Let's all just take a bunch of magic mushrooms. Magic mushrooms. <laughs> and get right, over fellas. PTSD, man. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to cut the it. podcast here, man. Thank you so much for jumping yeah, cool. in, fellas.
All right, thank you. Thanks for having us, David.